This podcast is brought to you by Templeton Press and their new book, The Christmas Virtues, A Treasury of Conservative Tales for the Holidays. The third book in Templeton's Virtue series, The Christmas Virtues is a collection of essays by some of your favorite humorists like P.J. O'Rourke, Christopher Buckley, Jonah Goldberg, and comedian Larry Miller. Edited by the Weekly Standard's own Jonathan V. Last, The Christmas Virtues features humor and insight from your Weekly Standard favorites like Steve Hayes, Andrew Ferguson, Christopher Caldwell, and some podcast guy. Go to templetonpress.org for a special discount and free shipping offer on The Christmas Virtues and all three Virtues books. That's templetonpress.org for a special discount and free shipping on The Christmas Virtues. Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us here as we approach Christmas Eve is Bill Crystal. And Bill, knowing your background as a, a fine Jewish American experienced in the ways of Yiddish, please watch your language. That's all I can say. Just please, I'm begging you, watch your language. I feel good as a Jew that it's a non-Jew, Donald Trump, who's, you know, using somewhat inappropriate uh, Yiddish terms to characterize um, his opponents or what happened to his possible opponents, I guess, and previous races. So it's not at least this isn't a scandal for the Jews. I was want to let's start with the two sto- interesting stories. Donald Trump uses a phrase for someone who lost badly. That was his claim about Hillary Clinton 2008. Right. We can dispute if that's accurate or not. I think he's right in the sense that Hillary was a she was a shoe in she was a lock and the fact that she lost it all i think sports fans would say oh man she really got you know beaten badly and then you've got the um the ted cruz story with a cartoon that the washington post posted then took away then suggested maybe they shouldn't have taken down regarding ted cruz and his kids do these two stories tell us anything about the media environment that conservatives or republicans uh, live in or that America lives in, right? I mean, mm. the degree to which Trump, who is the front runner for the Republican nomination, uses a vulgar term. I don't think he quite meant it the way some people are taking it. And maybe he meant it in a more general way. I've noticed that Yiddish terms, I, my grandmother spoke Yiddish, so I'm sort of familiar with them, as they migrate into the broader culture, get, take a more general meaning, and they lose their original, precise, and sometimes even more vulgar meaning. On the other hand, it's probably not something that someone running for president of the United States should say about someone else uh, who ran for president of the United States. Uh, the Washington Post cartoon really was vulgar and um, uh, nasty and mean. I don't know if it's exactly racist. You know, people like to throw that term around. Right. Cartoonists are entitled to be vulgar and mean, I suppose. A little less so when you're talking about little kids of a presidential candidate. That's traditionally been considered um, somewhat out of bounds. And then, of course, was it the original, was it her statement or the Post statement originally that said, well, the little kids are, quote, fair game because right. they've been used in a, in a TV commercial. That term is, is disgusting, really. And, and uh, um, yeah, it's a bad environment. It's worse for conservatives, obviously. It doesn't help when Trump sort of plays into that. I would say, incidentally, if you look at the other candidates, whatever one thinks of Cruz, Rubio, Christie, Bush, they've run pretty normal, dig, uh, dignified, maybe too high a term, but they've run <laughs> perfectly polite campaigns. Right. Like, they haven't said things that are out of bounds, particularly, and, and they're, you know, they're running a kind of normal political campaign. I do think the combination of the media feels like it's entitled to go after someone like Ted Cruz, who is a sitting United States senator running for a perfectly reasonable campaign and pretty impressive campaign for president. Mm-hmm. They may not like him. They feel they're entitled to use terms about him. This is true, incidentally, even of some conservatives, I would say, terms about him that they would never use about anyone else and, right. and shouldn't use, really, about anyone else. I've been struck by the nastiness of uh, which people feel entitled to go after 
you know, conservative candidates, Tea Party-based candidates, people a little bit uh, outside of their comfort zone politically. Well, two things. First of all, about the uh, expression Donald Trump used, uh, I will just say that I'm not a huge sports guy, but a lot of guys in my demographic are big sports guys, and they talk a lot about winning and losing. And we didn't even raise an eyebrow over that phrase. Right. You know, right. you know, uh, a phrase my dad uses being from the rural south is, you know, beaten like a rented mule. You know, and that's right. I mean, there's a whole I mean, we could we could list a hundred colorful phrases for someone who should have won, who lost and humiliated their team, their fans or friends, whatever. So uh, th- this is a complete me- the, the media coverage of it. Bill has been hilarious because they've completely invented a story. The vast majority of America looks at that and goes, man, Trump says worse than that. <laughs> Every time, not on my TV. As far, though, as the Ted Cruz thing, I didn't raise an eyebrow because the way conservatives are treated in the media is so awful. I mean, he's lucky that they didn't accuse him of child abuse for dragging his unpaid, not even minimum wage children into the sweatshop of Ted Cruz Videos, Inc. You know, when you get called a racist for supporting school choice, which I have been, when you get called a bigot for talking about the problems inside Islam when it comes to problematic theology, which we have all been, you know, having Ted Cruz's kids appear in a cartoon, I got to tell you, it, it, it feels like it's, it's, it's a, uh, a pillow being swung in the middle of a knife fight, that knife fight being the everyday media treatment of the right. Yeah, it is astonishing, and it really has, I mean, it was all, I mean, I guess maybe it's not new. You know, Barry Goldwater was one of the Republicans, was a sitting United States senator, very much unlike Ted Cruz, incidentally, popular with his colleagues, thought by everyone to be a very decent human being, a uh, veteran and so forth. He gets the Republican nomination. He's a very conservative guy. Even some of his supporters are a little wacky, the John Birches and right. so forth. But no one thinks Goldwater's personally a mean or racist or crazy person. He's going to get clobbered anyway by LBJ. And the left trots out psychiatrists to say that he's unstable. Remember this? I mean, we weren't around in 64. I was a kid, and you probably weren't even born then. But the, um, it, the degree to which the left has used slander, as parts of the right have two at times, but really not in America, I would right. say. And in fact, the right has tried to police that, whether it's Bill Buckley or others have tried to say, no, no, I'm sorry, that's too far. Pat Buchanan, someone like me, you know, I was happy to see him leave the Republican Party, frankly. And, and of course, I've been very tough on Trump, and many others have, too. So the left, however, you know, those uh, I never heard much from the left saying that was a disgraceful what we did to Barry Goldwater or to other conservative uh, spokesmen over the years. So maybe Ted Cruz is simply the latest in that. And they can't, and journalists can't play the, quote, journalism card because they've abandoned journalism so shamelessly. And I thought it was interesting went back and did some checking back when 2006 when the Danish cartoons hit the Washington Post refused to publish them even though they were the, they were literally the front page news a thousand deaths attributed to the protests and they refused to even publish them in 2010 they killed a uh, comic uh, back in the comic pages non sequitur because instead of doing well where's Waldo they did where's Mohammed for you know the Mohammed cartoon day they refused to run it so they clearly have standards they just have no standards towards conservatives and that's where we are I want to ask no, about they're the- very they're very courageous in attacking Ted Cruz which they're of course get going to get complimented on and at all right. the cocktail parties and every every and in the work environment but yeah not so courageous taking on um, radical Islam right. or anything like that where they might be a real, a real price to be paid. I, I was, this really, the, I think goes back at least. Well, it goes back to Goldwater, as I said. But think of the Bush years. I mean, we all, in a way, maybe let this happen more than we should have. Not that we maybe could have stopped it, but Bush lied. 
people died. I mean, mm-hmm. does, I mean, it is, it is not a serious proposition that George Bush knowingly lied about WMDs, that he wanted us to go to a war where he was then going to be, uh, the nation was going to be embarrassed and the war effort was going to be severely damaged by not finding what we had told the whole world was there. Right. A lot of the world thought it was there, too. It wasn't, but that all, that's why it's so crazy that kind of Bush lied motif. That became dominant on the left. It became respectable. It was, not, it was used by actual senators and congressmen. It was not beyond the pale. And, and, no, and very few liberals said, wait a second, I was against the Iraq war. I think it's been badly conducted. I don't like George W. Bush, blah, blah, blah. But it is really a step too far and, and kind of outrageous to say Bush lied and, and, and people died. But, but, but the left has not policed its boundaries at all in the way that the, I think conservatives have. Well, see, I disagree. They have a very clear boundary. It's anything that goes after conservatives, Republicans is fair game, period. That's why the White House could hire a, uh, a 9-11 truther like Van Jones when President Obama first took office and the left media wouldn't even cover it and never acknowledged why he had to go because that's the wrong team. Uh, and then they'll turn around and draw a uh, Republican's little children as monkeys. I want to ask you about a, a, an astonishing number that leapt out at me from weeklystandard.com, Bill. Uh, here's the headline. Jeb is at 3%, Donald Trump 39%. If we multiplied Jeb's vote by 12, he would still be losing to Donald Trump. If I went back in the Wayback Machine four months, five months, six months and told you that, you would have probably had me institutionalized. Yeah, I guess Trump's vote in the CNN poll, that's a little higher than some others, but it's 39%. If you take our crews, it's higher than the rest of the field together. I mean, mm-hmm. the whole, all the, quote, establishment candidates together, these much-heralded governors and Senator Rubio were all, I don't know, I haven't done the math, but probably around 25%. So, I mean, it's really astonishing. It, it is, we've sort of taken it for granted now. We may be overreacting now in the sense of, I think people are overrating Trump's chances. There is some sign of topping off, and sign of that he's unacceptable to a pretty good chunk of Republican voters. Uh, Cruz is within four points of him in one national poll, though, though 20 behind in another, so who knows what the truth is. Pretty hard to poll for primaries. You don't know who's really going to vote. Uh, half the primaries allow independents to vote. Half of them don't. Obviously, a caucus has a lower turnout. You know, it, It's notorious that primaries are much harder to poll than a general election. So it seems to be the big story sitting here at the end of December is Trump holding up and even continuing to advance a little bit, much more than anyone thought. Uh, obviously, the collapse of first Rand Paul and then Jeb Bush. Those are the two things I was right about this year. I said at the beginning of the year, we probably said it on this podcast, 9, 10, 11 a month ago, I predicted, I, I remember this on TV, that Rand Paul would get fewer votes than Ron Paul had gotten in 2012, and everyone just thought I was crazy. Rand Paul was the flavor of the year, libertarianism and so forth. I never thought that would work, and of course, world events have really damaged him, as well as his own campaign to some degree. Jeb Bush, I was always a skeptic about. You were, too. I think we were right about that. On the other hand, Trump holding up there in the high 20s or 30s or even high 30s is pretty is, is astonishing. I won't even say pretty astonishing. Uh, I think the only three candidates who've gained vote since December 1st are Trump a little bit in the average, in the real clear politics average, Cruz quite a lot, right. and Christie, actually, from a very low base, so right. going from like three to six. I want to go back because we're passing... I think a, a significant part of the story, we're not giving it uh, its, its due, and I hope I'm not saying this out of schadenfreude, but I might be. Jeb Bush, the son and brother of a president, the anointed president, six months ago, I had political people telling me on my radio show and stuff, he's the nominee, Graham, get over it, you just got to choke it down, nobody can stop him, he's got everything you possibly need, and it's not just that he's not winning, 
he's at 3%. He's nowhere. I mean, he's been utterly rejected at every level. Nothing's left for him to do but go to Iowa and literally stand outside a schoolhouse begging people individually, please vote for me. That's all that's left. It is. No, look, you're right. It's astounding, and it's a good reminder that these things aren't particular, but particularly that this year has been so, I mean, maybe you and I were right in seeing that there would be much more resistance to Bush than people thought. Though I imagine even you and I would have said, well, he'll probably be one of the final five, but he won't win against someone else, you know? Yeah, you're right. Just to be on the verge of being knocked out, I I guess he'll fight this through through Iowa to New Hampshire to see if he can't be the leading non-Cruz, non-Trump Cruz Carson person in either Iowa or New Hampshire. That's actually become a very important spot now. I don't believe Bush has nearly as good a chance of being that as Rubio does or Christie. Right. Um, but I, maybe he'll stay in. I still wouldn't be wildly surprised if he takes a shot at one more debate and decides to and decides to get out. Well, uh, on a previous podcast that people can find at weeklystandard.com, I ran this question by Michael Warren. Lindsey Graham endorses somebody to try to help them in, you know, say, South Carolina, where he has 2% of the vote. Does that help or hurt them? Jeb Bush drops out and endorses somebody. Does that help or hurt them? If I'm Marco Rubio, I'm begging Jeb, whatever you do, don't endorse me. Am I, Michael Graham, wrong about that? No, I think you, Michael Graham, are right. Of course, I have to say that since we're on your <laughs> podcast. But no, no, well, you no, don't want me to cut off your right. microphone, do you? Yeah. Losing candidates. I know. I think, especially people who've been sort of, in the case of Bush, rejected, you might say, having been a front runner. In the case of Lindsey, my impression is in South Carolina, his numbers aren't that good. Now, it's, I don't, endorsements don't matter that much, period. Endorsements of rejected candidates really don't matter. Um, I do think there are endorsements that could matter. You know, if I were um, in Iowa, if Joni Ernst uh, were the senator from Iowa, very, very popular popular, young, impressive, just elected. If she were to endorse one over another, I think that could move some caucus goers. If Kelly Ayotte in New Hampshire, Nikki Haley in South Carolina. So I think it's more of a state-by-state thing. And if I were running, say, the Rubio campaign, I assume most of these senators, uh, one gathers, his colleagues don't like Ted Cruz that much. I suspect most of them would be for Rubio. If Rubio could get some endorsements going into relevant states from these kinds of, uh, you know, from senators who are popular in that state, that could make a difference, I, I, but I agree. I wouldn't think Jeb Bush's endorsement um, would be a huge, huge asset at this point. And that's, to me, is going to be interesting to see if the media message, the 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 sense that people have, but that they're only remember we're only getting this from the media. There have been no votes cast. That this is truly an outsiders burn the building down election. And I think Iowa, New Hampshire, that'll be the most interesting thing for me is do the Trump people show up? Do the Cruz, angry Cruz people show up? You know, do the do the uh, uh, establishment candidates really do as poorly as they're polling? And if they do, if that's the case, then I want to run from uh, from endorsements. But I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not predicting it, but I wouldn't be surprised if, in fact, what we see is a much more traditional you know what tends to happen is what tends to happen, and I think that these kind of establishment guys are going to do better than you think. The uh, anti people are not going to show up to vote in the numbers at which they're polling, and that it would obviously be good news for the Christies and Rubios of the world, and not as good news for Cruz and Trump. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and I think one very interesting question for Cruz is: Does he somehow can he navigate? You know, can he be the 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 acceptable, right. uh, more plausibly governing? candidate who appeals to a fair number of the Trump voters. That's clearly been his strategy. It seems to be working pretty well at this point, but it's a tricky thing to, to navigate, and he'll get 
uh, you can get pummeled from either side, in a sense, trying to navigate that. And then I do think that Rubio, what looks to me like a Rubio-Christie probably showdown, conceivably Bush or Kasich, which of them runs first in Iowa and then ahead in, runs ahead of each other in Iowa and then ahead of each other in New Hampshire is big. I mean, if, if, if let's just assume when you, Iowa goes Cruz, Trump, 1-2. Let's assume New Hampshire goes Trump, Cruz, 1-2. I don't even think that's, that's probably not the most likely outcome. Right. But just put aside Cruz and Trump. makes a big difference, it seems to me, if you're Marco Rubio and you run a strong third in Iowa, or conceivably second ahead of Trump, and then you run a strong third, maybe second in New Hampshire, then I do think the Bushes, the Christies, the Kasichs start to collapse to you, or their supporters collapse to you, and you end up probably with a three-way race, Trump, Cruz, Rubio. On the other hand, if Christie surprises a little bit in Iowa, is close to Rubio, and then beats Rubio in New Hampshire, and then suddenly Christie maybe becomes the establishment alternative, or they both stay in, in which case we have the opposite of what we've had in previous years, which is the conservatives unite behind Cruz, Trump's the outsider, and the establishment vote gets split a little bit longer. One thing I am somewhat convinced of, I, I don't think this thing gets resolved nearly as quickly as it has in the last few couple of cycles, where, you know, someone wins after the first four, so you can sort of see the right handwriting on the wall, even if Romney had to slog it out some in 2012 against Santorum. I, I think at this point, we really might not know the nominee after the first four, or even after March 1st, the big SEC primary, even into March 15th. I mean, we could have three candidates winning a pretty good share of the vote and very unclear who the nominee uh, will be. And uh, given that we don't go to winner-take-all states until after the SEC primary, uh, that's interesting, too. It keeps a lot of people alive. Of course, I can hear Donald Trump right now listening to you, Bill, going, Oi, Gewalt! Oh, this is all for blunt. Oh, yeah, maybe no Yiddish. How about no Yiddish in the presidential campaign? That's one of my proposals. No way. I'm, I'm, I'm. My uh, Jewish grandmother calls me a kufflefel. I think I'm getting that right. And uh, yeah. that's what I like about Donald Trump. He's a kufflefel out there, there leveling his cluff. Troublemaker. Troublemaker. So, I guess is what something, means, something right? like that. Uh, well, the, it stirs the pot. I think is literally what it means, or something like that. I, 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 I'll go home and ask my wife all this stuff, as she'll explain I think it's it. The spoon you know, the spoon that stirs the pot, I think. We, we have an expression like that in English, right? A pot stirrer or right. something like that. And so that's that's you, and I guess that's me, right? That's no, not a bad thing. My wife calls me her goy toy, and I'm happy to be that. So okay, I'll take well, that's, that. that's impressive. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. You're a real mensch, Bill. And uh, thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.